0: The Hop4 Podcast is proudly brought to you by Charles Farham. Charles Farham have been sellers of hops since 1865 and hop growers for even longer. They stock nitrogen flushed leaf hops, T90s and T45 pellets, and to ensure their hops remain in optimum condition, they have state-of-the-art cold stores at their sites in Worcestershire and Yakima in the USA. At CharlesFaram.com, brewers can shop by pay-as-you-go or using agreed credit terms for yeast, malt, fruit purees and other brewing products. In addition to leading hop varieties from across the world, the Faram's family range brings you Archer, Emperor, Godiva, Harlequin, Jester, Most, Mystic, Olicana and Opus from their hop development programme right here in the UK. If you'd like more information or expert advice, visit the Brewer's Resource and FAQ pages on the website or contact their technical advisors for different uses, applications and recipes. They're always really happy to help. Visit charlesfarram.com today. That's charlesfarram.com. I'm Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast. Getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. With interviews, discussions, stories, and advice from a range of brewers and craft beer professionals, the Hot Forward podcast is here to help you and your beer business hot rocket your way to success. Visit our website at hotforward.beer to find out more. Grab yourself a beer as we crack open another fresh episode of the Hot Forward podcast. Hello, Hopheads, and welcome to another sesh on the Hot Forward podcast. Over the years, we've covered many topics on this show from a wide variety of guests. We've discussed biofilm in the brew house, lagering techniques, hot varieties, packaging beer, barrel aging and souring beers, almost everything you'd ever need to know about brewing great beer. But that's only half the story, because once your beer has made its way into cask, keg or small pack, you need to sell it. And that's where the hard part begins. Over the years I've worked within the industry, I've met some absolutely wonderful people who make outstanding beer. People who are passionate about what they make and unendingly knowledgeable about the science of brewing. But when it comes to sales, they struggle to shift what they make, which could quite possibly be the best beer that you'll never taste. Why is this? I believe this comes down to one thing alone. Making beer and selling beer are two entirely different skills. You might be great at brewing, but if you can't sell it, then it's time to learn a new set of skills. Obviously, this refers mainly to smaller breweries where teams are small and it's all hands on deck. Plenty of breweries out there and people listening to this podcast will have dedicated sales team members whose job it is to sell, sell, sell. So why do those people often find selling just as difficult? It's because selling is difficult. Naturally, as humans, we don't like being sold to. Nobody likes having something forced down their throat, even if that something is beer. For my sins, I was an estate agent for several years. and My job as sales negotiator was to sell. This involved everything from making cold calls, sending out blanket emails, writing to people individually, doing face-to-face appointments, keeping in touch with prospective buyers who were clearly in the market to sell or buy a house, as well as upselling mortgages and insurance policies. You name it, I did it. Was I any good at it at first? No, I wasn't. I'd come in with the hard sell and try to use glossy phrases such as, ooh, isn't this room warm and cosy? Which was really code for, you and I both know this living room is cramped, but I'm going to try and bullshit you anyway. However, over time, I learned that what buyers really wanted was somebody looking out for their interests. Someone who's got their back and somebody who they have built up trust with through a relationship And whereas most people want quick and easy wins, you have to play the long game. And that's not easy when it comes to building meaningful relationships and certainly not easy when it comes to sales, especially if your business has cash flow issues and you need the money in the bank now. Believe me, I've been there, done that, I've bought the t-shirt. There are no easy answers to selling craft beer, especially in a market as saturated as it currently is when consumer confidence and disposable incomes are low. But understanding the target market is key when it comes to sales. Two individuals who understand sales on the craft beer market are Darren Fissel and Ben Stevenson. Both Darren and Ben both own a variety of bars in Sheffield and Chesterfield and are about to add another one to their portfolio. Devil's Depot in Chesterfield is set to become one of a handful of Belgian beer cafes in the UK. An odd choice, you might think, for a type of venue. However, spotting a gap in the market, the pair have set about transforming an old cafe into a rustic venue in the town centre that will serve food and drink and a wide range of draft and packaged Belgian beers. Darren and Ben certainly know a thing or two about selling and buying beer. So I joined them at Devil's Depot to ask them about their latest venture and about what bar owners are looking for when it comes to purchasing beer from breweries. Stay tuned for that discussion, as I'm sure you'll find it really insightful. But first, I'm joined by Will and Ben from Charles Farum for this week's technical
1: feature. Hi, Nick. Hi, nice to see you? How are you guys doing? Uh, pretty good at the moment. We're just coming to the end of uh, harvest season here uh, in the UK, so it's uh, everything seems to be going okay, but it's been a fairly phonetic period. For yes, I can imagine.
0: <laughs> I should imagine that sort of September to early October window is like all
2: systems go at Charles Barron. Uh, absolutely. It doesn't really stop there either because that, the primary work, yes, is getting the hops in, in good condition. Then the job really starts for us with all our testing that we, we do before we package the hops. And then on the new varieties this is when we get the chance to start rubbing and sniffing and brewing with these new varieties. So it's the the work's just begun, Nick, but it has been absolutely manic, as Ben (laughs) Ben said. So do you guys have like a little brew kit there? We have two brew kits, actually. Um, So we have a 50-litre Browmeister, and we have a 5-litre, I think it's called a mini brew, isn't it? Yeah, which we're we're just trialling now because the idea of being able to, do five litre test brews sort of quick and dirty method is quite appealing Uh, it also allows us to test from single plant testing which would push things forward pretty rapidly
0: do you have all the equipment there to measure things like ibus and stuff
2: we don't we would send those off we work very closely with murphy's right and, and they would do the testing for us okay cool
1: at the, at the sort of stage we're at the moment, we're just trying to see if these new hops are viable for brewing because we've been rubbing and sniffing them for years, potentially, mm. um, and they they they're showing promise at that stage. But this is the sort of first stage we're actually putting it into some work
2: um, and seeing what happens. So it's uh, it's the first step on that that journey. Really, yeah. Nice. You, you'd be amazed at how many hops smell good in in the rub, and then that doesn't come through in into beer. Um, and some of that may be the way we're using it, uh, but but quite often it, it's just that maybe it has a low oil content. The oils that are there are really nice, they're just really low. Mm. Um, so it's quite important to, to before we scale them up too far and spend all that money on development, we, we're we trying to get a, a quicker method to give us another indicator.
0: Yeah, great. So for any of our listeners uh, that tune into the Hopford podcast regularly will you've been on plenty of times before ben you've not been on so much so why don't you just give us a little introduction to you ben and then will for anyone that doesn't listen that regularly you introduce yourself as well
1: no this is uh, well i'm a long time listener first time uh on the podcast so it's uh yeah nice to nice to be here um I rather worryingly realised a couple of weeks ago this is almost this will be my twentieth year in the brewing industry. Wow. <laughs> um, so ten years as a brewer uh, and then coming to my tenth year at Charles Ferrum. Um originally as uh, technical support here. My current role is as special projects manager. So uh, just been finishing up the, or working on our e-commerce project, our web shop. Uh, the next big big uh, project we're heading up here is the net zero. So that's going to uh,
2: keep me busy for a few years. Yeah. So, yeah. And we've got some really exciting things in the, in the pipeline for that as well. So um, that, that's probably a subject for another podcast. I'm um, but uh, yeah, really exciting stuff. So Ben is a bit like a minister without portfolio, gets to do all the exciting stuff.
0: Today, I'd like to look at dry hopping. I think it's something that brewers do more often than not now. It's just become par for course for so many beers, but there seems to be just like a million different ways to approach it. And before we, I ask some questions about dry hopping, well, maybe this could be my first question, actually. I was at a brewery the other day, and the brewery will remain nameless, but they have a cool ship, so that narrows it down to one or two breweries that people know and love. And... I asked the brewer, like how many grams per litre are you dry hopping your beers with? Cause th- he gave me this 3.6% pale ale and it's absolutely banging. And it just had so much hop character to it. And he went and got his calculator and he came back and he showed me and it was like something like 0. 0.0001 gram per litre. And it was like, basically not really at all. It's all in the cool ship But the hop flavour was intense and it had all the kind of characteristics you'd probably get from a dry hop. And I was amazed really because I know when I've tried just using hops at Flame Out and in the Whirlpool, obviously you get a lot of hop character, but I wasn't getting the same vibes. Now, do you think that comes down to the cool ship? Or do you think dry hopping isn't as maybe as required as we've all been led to believe?
1: I think it goes to the heart of most things when you come to this part of the brewing process is it's how long as a piece of string you can um there are so many variables uh, i often get asked how much should i dry hop and it depends on so many different factors uh, which are all dynamic um, so different brewery different hops different recipe different ph levels different types of kit um, different perceptions of what you what you think is hoppy um, that there's no right answer to it um and certainly when you come to that stage of the brewing process where yeast is getting involved as well. Um, it's very difficult to measure um, exactly what you're going to get out um, mm. from what you're putting in. So a lot of it is down to um, sort of trial and error, really. we can, we can can There's suggestions you can make for how to optimise the hot flavours you might be looking for. Um, but really, it's going to be down to trying it, tasting it, Smelling it and seeing what works for you, um, and you often find—I mean, certainly five or ten years ago, there was a sort of cold war to uh, to add as many as you possibly yeah. could, um, which was um, you know uh, fairly profitable for some uh, <laughs> some hop merchants of certain varieties um, because there was the huge amounts of hop getting put in there. But um, whether that was the most efficient and the best way to do things. Um, not necessarily it's it, as, and as you've said there you've tasted a beer which is where the hops are jumping out at you mm.
2: uh,
1: and it's not um, about volume
2: I, I think you know you've just given a really interesting example of how how it can change in different breweries so some traditional regional breweries that have dry hopped in casks will be using a 14 gram plug effectively it's a whole 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 leaf pressed into a little disc that fits through the shive hole. Right. And um, they're called type 100 pellets. They're not very common anymore, but that will be dropped in as the beer's racked and it will have two weeks to mature, which is much longer than you would do if you were um, dry hopping in the brewery. So it has a longer exposure time. So if we think 14 grams in 50 liters, is isn't a, isn't a high hopping rate, but you certainly on those lower strength beers, you'll get quite a significant effect. The problem we find is that after that two weeks, you have a, a sweet spot of maybe another two weeks, and then you start to pull through some of the polyphenols from the the, the because it, you're not taking it off the dry hops, mm. you're leaving it in, and and you start to the, the hop character will die away. And you'll get more off notes. So, if you like, it's a more high risk strategy. You can get incredible dry hot effects, and, and whole leaf does give you a different character to to pellets. But um, it 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 has more of a time dependency to it.
0: That's really interesting about the the cask stuff. Now, obviously, I know that breweries for decades of, of stuck dry hopping in cask, you know, particularly those traditional breweries. But um, yeah, I'd not really thought about the polyphenols from from that angle. And I, I wonder whether, I mean, obviously brewing science has advanced quite a lot in the understanding of of that over the, particularly the last, you know, 10, 20 years. But I, I wonder whether a lot of those sessionable strength beers you've just referred to just got drunk way faster and therefore drinkers didn't really
1: encounter that so much
2: you've hit the nail on the head I think Nick it's about
1: moving volume exactly right And I think in more recent times when people have started moving towards um, dry hopping in tank um, before final package um, and being able to measure uh, subjectively those flavours a lot better um, and, and have them more in control I think yeah much past eight or ten days you can start um, most people report that those sort of grassy phenolic um, or sort of polyphenols um, and the vegetable character are being extracted out Um, so there are some rules in inverted commas you you can kind of suggest so um, sort of i would say two days minimum generally for for dry hopping to um, extract um, the oils you want uh, 8 to 10 maximum um, and depending on the kit you've got and the beer you're trying to make and what you're trying to do and the um, the varieties you're adding, somewhere in between
2: there is the sweet spot for 95% of breweries. But temperature also has to come into consideration, so mm. if you're dry hopping at, at 6 to 10 degrees you're going to need much more contact time than if you're dry hopping at 16 to 18 degrees. So, I mean, Ben mentioned, you know, that there are so many variables, Uh, it's difficult to compare, but but certainly, yeah, the the, the sweet spot is something that needs to be worked out with the particular equipment that you're using, and it won't necessarily be the same for everyone. But this is where some other equipment like um, hot rockets, Come in as being a really useful way of being able to uh, accurately control the exposure. Mm.
0: Yeah, I was at one brewery a few months ago, and I was getting show around by the brewery manager, and she said, "Oh, and here's our hot rocket. You know where we keep all our hoses
1: because they don't use it anymore." Because uh, uh, I was just—that's <laughs> that, very, very common. There's um, there's quite a lot of hot rockets and hot torpedoes and other heavy artillery um in for sale now in various brewers out the back um because they're really good idea on paper they do lots of things um really well but actually you find that in practice um most brewers end up with the um the bucket and chuck it method is what we call it (laughs) um so just yeah um, putting in there which is the it's obviously the cheapest and easiest way of doing it and they would drawbacks to that too, but yeah, it's, uh, hot hot rockets were de rigueur for any self-respecting craft brewery about five years ago. (laughs) Um, and and a high proportion of them are now sat at the back of the brewery. I
2: I think the hot rocket, the, the idea and the principle works very well. The, the, The problem is it adds a whole nother process. It adds a whole nother set of cleaning, um, uh, purging, you know, you're, you're increasing risk when you use something like a hot rocket. And yes, there is increased risk when you use the bucket and chuck it method, but it's one risk as opposed to several mm. layers of risk, which is the, the the issue with the hot rocket. I've always described them as like a, for on really simple terms,
1: uh, like a cafetière with two open ends. I um, mean, that's the essence of it: is you're trying to extract, you're trying to get um, all those oils out uh, without any of the leaf matter. Um, the the other benefit of, or um, well, the, the sort of two benefit, the big benefits of hot rockets, as I see, or similar, is that you don't have the issue with possible uh, vegetal characters, those grassy polyphenols coming out because they're not in prolonged contact with the beer. And the other one is um, if you're using the bucket and chuck it method if you've added the hops to the beer that's it you're done (laughs) they're in there um whereas with the uh with the hop rocket you can spend you can do your two or four or however many hours um, of circulation you want to do Um, you can taste the beer and you go actually i think maybe that needs another two hours of a fresh charge you can keep on adding Mm. whereas in in the first method you, you can't, that's, yeah, that's what you've got really. Yep. Um, and it's uh, less flexible. But as you say, in practice, a lot of, a lot of brewers are going, it's not worth the hassle. Mm.
0: So short of having a hop doser aside, so for anyone listening to this that doesn't know what that is, it's basically like a cone type thing that can be pressurized and you purge it with CO2 and it's got like a valve on the bottom. Well, your tank should have the valve on and you open the valve and then all the hops fall in. So you can basically purge the doser and get your hops in there with minimum O2. That aside, Because I know there are quite a few breweries out there listening to this that'll have that that, and I think they're worth the weight in gold. But for the bucket and chuck it method that you've just described for people that don't have a hop doser, what would you say the best way to dry hop in the top of the tank is if you don't have that, but you want to minimize any dissolved oxygen?
1: Uh, well, the first thing to do is uh, check your carbonation levels. Uh, we've all seen the videos of people throwing <laughs> in hops and then oh, quite a lot of the beer coming back at them. Uh, so that's a really crucial bit that you don't suddenly start adding a billion nucleation points to your uh, to your beer. Um, so yeah, make sure it's depressurized. Um, I would certainly recommend adding while well, there's still some active fermentation happening. So at least four points. That helps, as Will alluded to, with because your temperature is going to be, you know, generally still at the fermentation temperature. So you're going to be have a day or two of extracting those uh, those warmer oils, some of those oils that come out at warmer temperatures. Mm -hmm. Um, But also the active fermentation will be eating up any oxygen that you're you're adding in. So that would be um, on a really kind of simple piece. That would be what I would recommend. Just off Uh, the
0: back of that, can I ask um, about top creep? So, when you if you add hops towards the end of active fermentation, will that help with any extra diacetyl levels that could come off of hop creep? I mean, obviously, you should be giving your beers a diacetyl rest anyway, but um, you know s- s- they're a bit of a bugger sometimes. I find even with the diacetyl rest, I'll dry hop and then it'll still kind of like uh, unlock sugars. So, d- does that yeah. help?
2: If, if you give if you dry hop during active fermentation. Those enzymes that are present in the hops are acting in the warm conditions. They will be breaking down those sugars that they are going to act on and the yeast will be using those up during active primary fermentation. So that will reduce your, your risk of producing darsatile in the, in the secondary fermentation. Mm. One of the other benefits of. Dry hopping when there's with a few degrees left to go, as as Ben alluded to, which yes, it it, it takes up any oxygen that that is uh, made available, but it also gives the yeast a chance to do some, do some biotransformation. So some of those floral characteristics that 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 come out um, through biotransformation and those thiol, those sulfury uh, uh, passion fruit, peach, those sorts of characteristics that really, to get the best out of them, you you need the yeast to do some of the heavy lifting for you. Mm. That will only happen if you do it during active fermentation. Although I would, as a caveat to that, if
1: I was attempting for biotransformation, I'd probably be adding on the second day of fermentation Mm. as opposed to the second day from the end. So, yeah, giving it more
0: time. See, this is an interesting topic in and of itself, and I know we could go on for hours about <laughs> biotransformation. But I did a beer. Oh, it must have been about a year ago now. Where, and th- this is a testament to how this beer ended up because I've still got a keg of it in my cellar. <laughs> where the word tasted fine when I was casting off, because I always taste it just to make sure it's not. As much you know, as much as you can, kind of when it's super sweet, you know, to make sure it's not too bitter or anything. And then a couple of days into tasting it, yeah, it tastes totally fine. You know, obviously, again, very sweet and tastes like it's fermenting wort. So I thought, great, I'll stick load of hops in it. This will end up like being the bad boy, you know. And then it was as astringent as anything by the end of fermentation, like so unbelievably astringent. And I'm convinced that that's because of the the dry hopping and possibly the yeast combo. Any, any insights onto my astringent beer? <laughs> I, it,
1: you're saying astringency with such <laughs> such passion that I would I would have thought that my my the culprit I would have thought would be the polyphenols right um, being extracted right. because most of the and this is slightly yeah most of the characteristics you will be getting during biotransformation with good, fresh aromatic hops will be positive, right? They're, they're, they're fruity characters. They're nice styles and not that, that astringency,
2: that sort of bitterness. De- so
1: Definitely
0: not nice character.
2: No, no. Uh, there are some hops that are known culprits that have sort of some polyphenols in that are not particularly favorable, some tannins that that can, once you've fermented it out, can leave you with a, a dry astringency that isn't very pleasant.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I put it down to definitely a combination of the dry hopping and the yeast strain I used. It was like a New England type strain. I, I won't name where it came from, but it was a dried version of a very popular uh-huh. wet yeast. All the brew sheets were fine. pHs were fine. Every, you know, the amount of hops per liter in the whirlpool was fine. The temperature of, of the whirlpool was fine. It was all fine. But it, so I was so disappointed, you know, by the time I got this really, really awful beer at the end of it. And that astringency's kind of mellowed out over time, but not to the point where I'm like, oh, great, I'll happily drink this now. It's, mm. I mean, the fact... I don't even know why it's still in my cellar, really. It's, <laughs> okay, I guess the other question I have on... I'm sure a load of people have this question, is surrounding vessel types. So lots of modern breweries these days have dpvs so they've got the advantage of retaining all that hop aroma rather than it flashing off but there are lots of breweries this to this that are still using open top fermenters or, or dished bottom fermenters you know with some kind of lid or whatever when it comes to dry hopping and those kind of latter type of fermenters what would you suggest for that? Because I see endless comments on forums and Facebook groups about people trying to get that big cloud water of a punchy IPA quality, but out of a traditional kit.
1: It's a nasty question. I don't think <laughs> that the, the kit is the, the culprit. Yeah, it's not the primary, primary barrier to no creating no. those sort of beers. That's interesting. It, there are certainly bits of kit which will help you along the way. Most brewers would love a centrifuge to pull out, <laughs> pull out <laughs> a lot of stuff without a lot of wastage, but um, in terms of actually getting that hop character, I don't think it's that's the primary issue. There are different process problems with different types of vessel um, and certainly on sort of modern DPVs it's easier to dump the cone um, and get rid of that and the as opposed to, certainly when I was brewing, which was um, whole leaf hops in a muslin bag lowered down on a, <laughs> a piece of string and weighed down with bits of stainless steel which classic. was classic um, <laughs> yeah it was fine getting them in it was quite difficult getting them back out <laughs> putting your hands apart but um, there are different challenges for for each brewery to kind of face with the kit that they're they're working on and each of those have got that's the skill and uh, of the brewer to be able to understand what those challenges are and adapt to them but I I wouldn't say kit is the issue with producing beers like that, you know, in that punchy juicy. Basically,
0: if I just said a bad workman blazes
2: tools. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we have a lot of conversations. Uh, A lot of brewers ring us up for advice and, you know, I think one of the problems trying to dry hop into a dish bottom fermenter with a shallow upstand it, it, one of the limiting factors is that you can't put too much in, otherwise you're going to be dragging hops through when you're racking off, uh, which which is what we don't want. Um, and you don't you don't therefore want lively casts afterwards. But as Ben alluded, I think that there are ways around most of these problems. Um, But it's almost infinite the number of variations you, you can have. So, um... <laughs> yeah, and
1: it's also got to be remembered that there are some brewers who make they make decisions. Um, I can certainly remember in the early days of sort of the um, juicy NIPA rage when it was going on, people were putting in almost obscene levels of hops. And they were looking at, uh, beer losses of 35, 40% in their beer, which is, um, <laughs> watering to most commercial brewers? But those were, those were commercial decisions they made to say, we're going to put in, we're going to pay a lot of money for the hops and we're going to lose a lot of our beer. Um, but we're going to make that back at eight pounds a can mm. or nine pounds a can now if you've made those decisions, um, it's very difficult to be able to, well, it's more difficult to be able to produce the same sort of beer if you're not willing to make those sacrifices. Mm. So if, if you want to make a beer just like someone else, then you should, (laughs) you could follow their path. But I, um, what I would suggest is, um, uh, looking at the the style you want to brew with, with the kit you've Mm. got, um, and, and making the best beer you can that way, rather than trying to chase someone else. Yeah.
0: Well, it's funny you should bring up losses because that was the other question I had. So, And it does tie in with the what 40 to 60 grams per litre or whatever or, or obscene amount of mm. uh, grammage you just referred to there. But I read something not too long ago saying that anything over 12 grams per litre, basically, y- you reach in a saturation mm. point. Now, on one level, I agree with that because... I've got a couple of beers in tank at the moment that um, are are about 12 grams per litre and they're fantastic. One of them actually is a, um, a, it's a British hopped pale ale, which is like a smaller version of England's Green and Pleasant Land. Um, Mm. So it's like 4.5% and it's about, well, England's Green and Pleasant Land had 20 grams of dry hop per litre obviously the losses on that are pretty huge and I'm only making small amounts anyway. So I I don't end up with that much beer. And it's very tasty beer when I do end up with it, but there's not that much of it. Whereas I noticed with this one, the smaller version with the less hops, it's almost as hoppy. And I was like, maybe I don't need to like use all those hops next time I do England's Green and Pleasant Land. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about wastage and grams per liter and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, um, saturation levels are a, a difficult topic because they're different for everyone, mm. um, and your perception of uh, of what you can taste um, is different from the person next to you. Um, I think uh, there's definitely. Um, I would probably go with a more of a law of diminishing returns. So the more you're adding, the you, yeah, you'll be getting less perception of change. And I would probably say that. Mid to high twenties is probably the upper limit that I would recommend. I would say after that, actually, you're probably just you're you're not wasting money, but actually, the money you're putting in, you're not getting the the bang you're bang for the buck. Mm. Again, it's complete. It is dependent on um, varieties used, when you're using them, how you're using them, the style of the beer, mm. the strength of the beer, all the other things all come into it. So, four grams in one beer might be super punchy. And then another stronger beer be you know, be completely anonymous. So it does, it, it is one of those where all these factors you have to weigh up as a brewer and decide where you want to go with it. Mm. Um, yeah, I would, the, the, what is also interesting is people were, as I said, there was this arms race of let's get more and more and more in. People have come down, uh, both in terms of, for reasons of we don't need to be putting this much in, we're getting a really good, nice. Just as you've alluded to, we're getting this really nice um, punchy character at twelve. What are we putting twenty in for? We don't need to because we're losing beer, um, and also the 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 squeeze on on brewers in terms of cost um, is very real. And if you can um, if you can min- there's, so there's a cost pressure uh, as well as a um, sort of flavour pressure um, uh, on both those. So we have started seeing stuff come down to slightly out of the stratosphere into into more sort of normal levels, right? And I would say anywhere sort of between 6 and 16 is pr- is pretty common for people now. Right. That's where people mostly are.
2: Yeah, you know, the dry hopping rate as ben, Ben's alluded, I, th- this, a stronger beer will have more malt characteristic behind it will have more fermentation characteristics behind it. And you probably need a more significant dry, hot profile to, to to sort of punch through all that if you like. Mm. So it really does have to be style and strength dependent, you know, different varieties have different oil content. So you can't necessarily compare one, one with another. Um, and you know we we normally estimate that you'll lose ten liters of finished beer for every one kilo of dry hop you add, so it's not just the the cost of the hops; it is also the cost of the the lost revenue at the end of it.
0: Yeah, I've well, I learned that when every I dry hop a beer, and again on such a small scale, even though I'm selling it into bottle shops because most of it usually just goes into can unless I'm brewing for like some beer festival or whatever you know it's really gutting when you get to the end of the batch particularly again I re- refer to England's green and pleasant land because it tastes so good and I'll can it I'm like really? i got eight cases? You know it's, there was like a hundred and something litres going into the tank you know <laughs> where's my beer damn it <laughs> yeah. yeah but um, yeah t- times that by however many hectolitres you know, it's, it's pretty understandable, really. So, yeah. And I guess finally, the other pressing question I'd love to ask is about the different types of hop. That's not varieties, but obviously you've got leaf and pellet and hop extracts and liquid form and cryo hops and who knows what else will be coming out. Over the next weeks and months, you know, so there's all these different hot products that people can add to their beer. Like, can you just talk through what the advantages of some of those are and disadvantages?
1: Uh yeah, how long, how long have you got? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I'm afraid it's gonna be another one of those that uh is uh is dependent on the on the brewer and their kit and what they want to do. Um in Leaf is obviously the, the rawest form of the hop, um, and that has been in the most traditional type. As, as Will was talking about earlier, the Type 100 pellets straight into cask um, are all leaf, uh, and most uh, brewers of a small size um, are quite happy to use leaf. Um, it's the sort of it's the most readily available for most of the varieties. Um, and, it's fairly common. What has massively taken over certainly in the last, uh, five to 10 years, specifically with dry hopping is the T90 pellet because it's much easier to process. Mm. So although, um, both are okay, uh, pro- I probably end up recommending T90 for dry hopping about 95% of the time, um, you get, uh, because of the, the way the, uh, hops have been processed. The lupulin and all the oils and aromas associated with that is uh, much more available to the wort, so it's much uh, much more soluble, dissolves much easier. Um, it's much easier to process. So, if depending on where you're adding it, it will be often you don't sit down at the bottom of the tank with its, with the yeast uh, and you can just pump it away or wash away or uh, go on your new, normal CIP cycle. Whereas um, leaf hops don't go through pumps very happily um, so there are those two um there are those benefits uh yeah process and availability of the oils are the two big wins for the for pellet uh, what we're also seeing come in are advanced pellet products so enriched pellets t45 pellets becoming uh more and more popular because they're um they've got Uh, higher content boils in there, you've got less vegetable material so basically you're having to add much less so that reduces your beer losses Um, so they're becoming more and more popular uh, as dry hopping becomes more popular and then uh, the last one you mentioned, some of the liquid products which are myriad there's loads of different products on the the market running from CO2 extract which is the pure extract of the hop so uh, most commonly used uh, on the hot side, um, there's no, no reason why you can't add it cold side as well. Uh, but some some more aroma products which are extracted usually varietal specific, uh, specifically for that dry hop hit, um, and obviously with those you get zero beer losses. Um, so depending again, throughout that range, there's something for everyone. To yeah, be able to, do what they
2: want to do. You also with the advanced pellets the the enriched pellets and the hop extracts you you have less risk of hop creep so what we mentioned earlier uh you've got less of the plant material and it, it is a bit dependent on which you're using but mm. as a as a generalization you will have less hop creep by using those products yep great well
0: thanks for being on Today guys, um if anyone's got any questions about dry hopping and they need to contact you how can they do that?
2: Through, through the website is the easiest or I'm will rogers at charlesfarum.co.uk and ben adams at charlesfarum.co.uk. Great.
1: www.charlesfarum.com. The Hot Four podcast is
0: proudly brought to you by Charles Farum. Charles Farram have been sellers of hops since 1865 and hop growers for even longer. They stock nitrogen flushed leaf hops, T90s and T45 pellets and to ensure their hops remain in optimum condition they have state-of-the-art cold stores at their sites in Worcestershire and Yakima in the USA. At CharlesFarram.com Brewers can shop, by pay-as-you-go or using agreed credit terms for yeast, malt, fruit purees and other brewing products. In addition to leading hop varieties from across the world, the Farums Family range brings you Archer, Emperor, Godiva, Harlequin, Jester, Most, Mystic, Oluqana and Opus from their hop development programme right here in the UK. If you'd like more information or, or expert advice, visit the Brewers Resource and FAQ pages on the website or contact their technical advisors for different uses, applications and recipes. They're always really happy to help. Visit charlesfarram.com today. That's charlesfarram.com. On the Hot 4 podcast this week, I'm in Chesterfield, joined by Darren and Ben from the forthcoming Devil's Depot, which is a Belgian cafe, right? Yep, that's the one. Can you guys introduce yourself? You've got various different venues dotted around this area.
3: So So I'm Darren, Um, got Industry Tap, opened it four years ago. Um, And then nearly two years ago, we opened... The hop lamp in the batch house as a joint venture. Yeah,
4: but two years ago in February, uh, I'm Ben. I've, I own Brimming with Beer in Brimington, well established, seven and a half years in the making, um, and we've joined forces once again to come to Deva and work on the Devil's Depot.
0: You know, I used to sell my beer to you, but I do I, I've only. I've, I've met you in person before, right? Yeah, I, yeah, A yeah, few times. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't do that many deliveries. I know I've spoke to you like loads online. I, I've, I've, um, I didn't do that many deliveries with Sheffield but I remember always seeing Brewing with beer coming up and thinking, "Well, I wonder where that is."
4: Yeah, I've, had, I've had some Emmanuel stuff on there as well.
0: Look at that, yes.
4: Well, worked away now from bottle shop side of things, and it's very much just a bar little fridge under the counter selling a small array of craft. But as we've talked about earlier today, um, prior to this recording,
0: I think the bottle shop
4: side of things has took a somewhat of a slump.
0: Yeah, well, we'll, we'll come on to that. It'd be great yeah. to chat about this place first. Um, so talk us through Devil's Depot, what it is, what your plans are for it, when it's going to open, all yeah. that sort of thing.
3: It is a Belgian-inspired cafe bar serving amazing Belgian food he um, you, you just, you just walked past us and, like, failed to introduce himself to you. But, yeah, Ke- Kez, yeah Kez is our chef uh, who has come from a, a well-known establishment within Chesterfield. Um, yeah, so looking forward to working with Kez and, and developing a menu that will complement the beers that we're stocking. Kez is currently stoking your open fire. Uh, that's the one. He is, he is the fire starter. M- multi-talented
4: that's all he's got for a kitchen for now (laughs) (laughs) I'll
3: have a a a sausage and a bit of bacon please (laughs) Um, yeah yeah so yeah we both got a love love of Belgium Um, Belgian beers Belgium as a as a place to visit Um, yeah earlier earlier on the year we were over there on a a field trip doing a bit of research yeah scoping out some potential venues Um, but we decided to keep it in the uk
4: far easier to open somewhere
3: here and bring belgium to chesterfield
4: than commute weekly to belgium
0: <laughs> now I, I always thought with like belgian style beers in the uk having brewed in before both for emmanuel's and sheffield brewery that they're always harder sellers but well, that's not the case is it
4: no get the right the right beer for the right yeah. audience um the belgium range that we have. Are, our largest venue, the Lamp, they're, they're the biggest sellers. You know, mm-hmm. the, uh, Vedette, Vedette Lager that we sell down there is by far, it's the, it's the most premium beer on there that's, you know, on permanently. And it just sells, we sell thousands of pints every month. Um, I think a lot of people associate Belgian beers with the more traditional Trappist mm. beers, you know, the stronger end of the scale but they do have stuff that is your everyday drink yeah it's nice to have those special ones and the lambics and stuff but they're not for everybody whereas they do do beers that you know a good majority of people that walk through the door are going to be they're going to recognize them as something similar to something that they might already drink
0: yeah so what do you think it's going to set apart for the belgian
3: beers obviously what i mean what do you think will set this place apart then there's there's very few um, Belgian bars, Belgian-inspired cafes uh, in the UK, and I think that uniqueness and the fact that we're bringing it to to Chesterfield is something that is is going to be good for the area. Um, yeah, it, it's it's going to be nice. We're outside a coach station, so we're going to get people that are passing by. That one of the first things they see when they get into get off the National Express in Chesterfield is is Devil's Depot and the brollies, the support that we've got from the breweries that we're working for, the Duval Morgart group is is awesome. Um, yeah, John is a huge ambassador for their brand. Um, we've worked with him on, on multiple venues and yeah, the, the, the support is, is amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's absolutely,
0: going to be an incredible building. I mean, a lot of it's been decked out already but there's still a way to go but you've got like the, the neon lights on the wall. Um, you've got your... your Fonts, the, the, the shoe, gnome, um, you know, and, and the whole thing's just got this really kind of antique rustic feel about it. like how, uh, when you're approaching the aesthetic of a venue, whether it's this one or the hop lamp or industry tap, and you're setting up a venue like that, what, what considerations do you have to make?
4: I think pretty, for this one, pretty much flicking through years and years of trips around. Belgium and looking at the inspiration from places that we like over there, and trying to, you know, certain things you can't replicate if you're in a 300 year old building <laughs> with a, a sort of vaulted brick um, cellar look to it. You can't be making that in, in an old mill in Chesterfield, but you can bring certain aesthetics from that and replicate it quite easily. Um, and that's what we've tried to do, I think, yeah. in
3: this place, isn't it? I mean, the good thing is, obviously, it was vintage tea rooms originally. Um, so, yeah, we're we using a lot of the stuff that. Yeah. was... have got a
4: great look when we came to see it,
3: yeah. isn't it? And it, it, it was that, it was a lot of places like Chesterfield, for instance, and the hoplamp was a blank canvas, a very industrial feeling building. Um, so, new bespoke furniture in there. So, it needed to be new. If we'd have put antique in there, it just wouldn't have been right. Whereas in here, what we wanted, we want it to feel like you're in Belgium. Uh, we want it to feel that, yeah, so antique bottles, antique tills, yeah, Singer machine up, up on wall and stuff like that. And it's, yeah, it just lends itself to, the, to what we're aiming to do with branded glassware and the right glass for the right drink. That experience that you would get in Belgium, we want to bring to Chesterfield. Yep. Um, We've yeah, sat
4: and looked at the building, haven't we, and noticed like the double glazed French doors out onto the street. Perhaps aren't the aesthetic we were looking for in here. we've bought a Victorian vestibule to sit in front of that. So once you're in here, it feels encapsulated. Mm. You're not you're not in a building that's been made to look. old. this is an old building. It just so happens that we've. Turned it into a bit more of a continental theme, if you will.
3: The building lends itself to to coming and, and having a nice beer, having a nice coffee, and sitting and watching the world go by. We've got uh, the oldest bowling green in the UK, potentially the world. Potentially uh, the happen. world. That's a, that's a claim to fame.
4: Yeah, so that's the only view you can see if, if you sat in here because because of how we've we're going to cordon the door off and things. The only view. To the outside world, unless you sat on the terrace, will be the the bowling green next door.
0: Look at that. See, I thought that I did a podcast with a brewery based in Bradford, who apparently told me that Bradford's claim to fame was that the space hopper was invented there. So it's up there with you know <laughs> either the invention of the space hopper or the world's oldest bowling green.
3: Yeah, this is this, this is it. So yeah, so yeah, sat on a. On a nice summer's summer's evening, watching a bit of uh, crown green bowling. Um, Yeah, so it should be should be good. Um, Yeah, all with yeah some some amazing food. So when you're working with
0: large breweries like Devel to you know install taps and point of sale and all that stuff, how does that process work? And how much does point of sales material actually help? come to actually sell beers
4: I think branding for most businesses is a a big a big player and well anybody that's been to Belgium will know that the Belgian breweries are very very keen and the bars on serving their beer in the right glass whereas here it doesn't seem to be so much of a a priority you know everybody's had a Kellam Island, Easy Rider in a Guinness glass or something, or in the a past. Gu-
0: Guinness in a <laughs> yeah. Kellam carling. Island yeah. glass, yeah, pained oh, yeah. into my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and,
4: and knowing that that's that's their, you know, that's where they start with their pride in their their brand. Then they go up to bigger things, and and they're very very keen to support with that, aren't they? And, yeah,
3: and definitely
4: make it known. That they're sold in an establishment and,
3: mm.
4: and push it. Yeah,
3: we're 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 shoe ambassadors um, in the UK for for dev, uh, for the Hoplamp. lamp, um, and that obviously that brand awareness that is pushed from shoe. Um, yeah, is good. I mean, our industry tab won at first venues in UK tab six 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 on draft. We replicated that into into Chesterfield. We've got it again on draft here. Um, so yeah, it's it's making sure that you, I mean, there's a, there's a such a, such a great portfolio of beers that you can have and such a wide range. So you, you've got cherry shoe, you've got leafman's yeah, for debt, as Ben's talked about earlier on. So there will be something for everyone. Mm. Um, and then on, on top of that, the extensive range of, of Belgian bottle beers that we'll have as well will just be yeah. I, I don't, I don't think, um, as a as I sit here today, I don't I don't think there'll be many people that actually get through the full full beer menu um, because they, there'll be something for everyone. Mm. Um, whether that is say the bottle, the full range of bottles that we're going to be bringing in, you'd have to do some numerous numerous visits over over the uh, over the first year to to get get it through them. So I'm censoring
0: be some numerous visits from me over the first <laughs> year
3: because I absolutely love Belgian beer. So, just looking
0: a little bit wider, maybe other venues and the hospitality and brewing sector at the moment, because we were having some really great conversations earlier that I wish we'd have recorded. Um, so it'd be great to go over some of that again. But like, how how how's the hot lab doing? How's industry tap doing? Brewing with beer? What are some of the challenges you're facing at the moment in those different venues?
4: They all have their own own unique challenges, don't they? They all have their own unique really really good points about them um and i think the the good thing about what we do is that they're all free houses we're not tied to any breweries so if something's not selling you can move on to the next you can there are our own so you can just adapt you know I, I took out lots of shelving lots of fridges and stuff like that and put in another i it went from Fourteen seats to twenty six today? Yeah. Something like that. Is this it at
0: was, room, uh, room at brimming with beer? Brimming with beer, yeah. Because um, it's not a big room, is it?
4: No, no, it's not a big space at all. Got pavement license in place and it's primarily focused now on people drinking in. Right. Um and that's the beauty of being owner operator and being able to be in charge of your own destiny really. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's that's how we Yeah. How we've made yeah. Things work over the years, isn't it? Yeah, and Just I think being able to change things, you know, all right, we'll close on a close after play on a Sunday, we'll move that round and we'll get the saws in and get that chopped up and mm. turned into something else for opening against Thursday evening,
3: right? Yeah, and I think with with every venue, it's we've always got good relationships with us with landlords, so yeah, it, that landlords breweries that that sort of support just is as a, as a small business owner is is invaluable um i mean we worked very closely with landlord uh, down at chesterfield for Hopland when when we were first looking at, at that as a shell i mean we were we were involved in that process a year before we actually opened they'd not even broke
4: broke the ground on our side had they no it was literally mud
3: yeah so so to work to work with landlords and and develop what the plans look like and what the space is today it was was invaluable it, it's it's such a yeah it is it really really exciting time so opening another venue but also having the success of of existing businesses um, but it is tough i am we're not going to sit here and say everything's like smelling of roses it, it's not it is tough You've got to, as Ben says, you've got to adapt. Whether that be what range you're currently carrying, how you oper- operate with with off-sales, especially when supermarkets are doing the pricing that they're doing. Um, direct brewery sales to, to to customer is is huge. Um, we talked about it earlier on, picking up sort of 12 beers for 15 pound from breweries. It's it's massive. Mm. Um, so yeah. So the the only way that we can we can sort of compete is to keep get people still coming out still do what we do which is sourcing beers at great prices so that whilst we we talk about this cost of living crisis we can still offer a good product at a a reasonable price and i think that's what we what we do wherever we are Mm -hmm. um yeah this in big cities these venues wanting 70 percent gp and if that, 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 and that'll be the base rate, some products will try and push 72% GP and stuff like that. Whereas we've always been very careful to, to position ourselves priced right, I think. You at you were, you were Brimming and me at the top and, yeah, and it's, Chesterfield. it's about
4: knowing your audience, you know, we both, all our venues are in, situated in a place where, you know, you're not on a train station, you're not just getting passing custom, you're getting repeat custom. Mm. And in order to keep repeat customers coming back, it needs to be right. We've all been to a bar before and been charged extortionate price. Yep. And yes, the barman's the or the owners rubbing their hands going, oh, I've just charged them £8 pound for a lager. Ha ha. But you're not going back to that bar. And there's only so many people going to come past our mm-hmm. bars if we were to do that.
3: Yeah.
4: It'd be very short-sighted. And so that's why we've priced ourselves in the market, even at uh, the hop Lamp, which is straight across from the football ground, which is well regularly getting close to 10,000 people coming through the door every other week uh, and we, we get a good proportion of that Yeah. and I think if we'd have charged too much initially then we wouldn't have got the return custom we'd have had a first couple of games lots of people coming through going oh wow this is great and then it would have dropped off and we'd have been questioning what had happened but given where we are I think our pricing down there is very very reasonable yeah um, it's in keeping with the rest of the area and that's that's just testament to what we're doing too mm-hmm. yeah
3: definitely um, and and this will this will be this will be exactly the same um, again say support from breweries um, the range of beers that will stock and the fact that we will be supporting that with a with an exceptional food offering
1: yeah
0: so how do you find working with breweries like and i i always want to ask people that run bars or bottle shops this question and i'd I'd never feel like i get too much opportunity to do so but i would imagine you get absolutely slammed on every platform possible whether it's email social media your phone number by hello it's jeff from
4: Everybody, yes, brewery, everybody you know. sells the award-winning greatest beer in the world. Yeah, exactly. I,
0: yeah. I need to sell some beer. Please buy my beer. Like, how, how, as as bar owners and and you know, both from a, a small pack and a large pack front. Like, how do you deal with that? And what is it you're actually looking for when it comes to breweries approaching you saying, "Do you want our beers?"
4: Um, yeah. So first and foremost would be quality, followed closely by pricing. Mm. Um, there's a lot of breweries out there that'll. Do your oh, buy three cask offers or whatever this this week as your first order, and we can do it for this price, and then yeah, great. You get that beer in, and you sell it based on a lower price you've bought, and it goes all right. And then they come back to you a week later, two weeks later, and it's gone up fifty percent. You're not gonna you're not gonna get that in again because mm. you can't sell it at that elevated price. Mm.
0: So. Is well, that because look, customers have a perceived value of what that beer yes, is Yeah, be? yeah, I think so. And then if you so. add the extra margin on to compensate yes, after, it's like, hang on, that was 350 pint last week, now it's 560.
4: Yeah, right. yeah. Um, I've had quite a big brewery approach me recently and do something similar. They offered me three casks for a set price. I questioned straight away, what will be the price after this? And it was, it was, it was very, very big increase. And I just said, don't, let's not bother, you know we need the transparency, and we, we do that, don't we? We try to work with a brewery and get a, a price, maybe a fixed-in price for the next year, but we will consistently buy their beer if it's the right price, the right quality, and the customers will know that when they come in, that beer's gonna be that price.
3: Mm, yeah. I think, we, yeah, we're both, we're, both, we're both very careful. I think you, uh, you almost screen calls, um, you think I mean the the worst thing that any any salesman can do and having done it for, for a brewery myself is is pester people. You you work on a relationship where there's an element of trust uh, and they're the breweries that we'll consistently work with where yeah. there's trust, it's not a it's not a hard sell, it's not a fake discount, it's it's a good quality product as Ben says, at a good quality price and it's consistent. So sometimes I, just the
4: pestering is enough to put you off, isn't it? Yeah. You, know, you get a phone call from a brewery, you miss that call, and you get a phone call from a a number that you don't know, and it'll be that, or it'll be a withheld number then, and they'll try to ring you on two, three, sometimes you know five different methods to try and get in touch with you, and you think, how desperate must they be to sell this beer that they're telling me is amazing, and they sell out every week, so. You do question that, don't you, when yeah. the when the pestering starts? Yeah,
3: I I, I like so I, I industry tap for instance, I've got certain products I'll have on certain lines all year round and then I still have the variety. And I like that choice. I like being able to have a look on Ebria or have a look mm. on seller or, or the platforms that are available or looking at trade mailers. I like choosing. I don't want to be like, oh, you need to buy this because it's 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 the best beer ever. No, I'll 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 let, I'll let people judge. There's obviously going to be the hype that is untapped, but I do feel that, especially in the last 12 months, that that has died down a little. Mm. Um, you no longer have to have the 300 pounder keg uh, American hoppy beer to to get customers in. I think people, as as we know in, in all the rest venues, people like consistency. They like being able to come, know what they're getting, and know that they're not going to get charged a stupid amount of money for it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put a pin in that. We'll come back to that topic in a minute, because I know from our conversation earlier it was
0: pretty a pretty huge topic to discuss. Um, but just to round up this is about um, sales and breweries trying to sell beers to you, if it, if it, For breweries, this is where they're trying to get into new venues and they haven't got that initial relationship. Like, I I know having sold beer to you both, you know, we've talked for a long time. Obviously, I've done events at the Industry Tap, Darren, before. Um, So we've got that relationship. But for someone who's coming in fresh and they're like, yeah, you know, we we make decent beer. We want to get it in front of you. Like, how should they approach that? Because obviously, we've talked about quality then, but it's like, If there are little quirks such as like phoning you five times, sending smoke signals, homing pigeons, knocking on your door at 2am and pelting stones at your window to be like, buy my beer, try it. Like what what would you suggest to any brewery that's wanting to approach a bar owner or bottle shop just to kind of get that foot in the door?
4: I think I've uh, I've had people approach me before and they've said, you know, I'm new to the scene and I've got some beer. It's actually on tap now at and they've said you know go down have a have a beer try it see what you think and give me a call i can send you some prices over so when you go down and drink that beer consider you know they don't have to get into every venue straight away Mm. get into a couple of venues then go to the other venues and tell them you know this beer is available at x y and z if you're passing if you want to go down and and try it let me know what you think and we, we can come to an arrangement if you want to buy my beer. Yeah.
3: Mm. I think, I think
4: that's, that's probably the best, when I've had that from a brewer before, that's been the best sort of start to a relationship. Right. yeah. Because that's what they're starting as well, they're starting a relationship with you or they're trying to. Yeah. And it needs, you know, I've literally had people come in and ask me why I, I haven't bought their effing beer that they dropped a sample off of. What, no way? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's safe to say I then did not buy their beer whether in my bar or when I was out or anything yeah. ever but uh, yeah there's
0: there's very different ways of approaching pubs well that, that's a huge sense of pubs. entitlement from a brewer yeah. to, to behave yeah. like that you know at the end of the day uh, uh, and this is something I've had to learn over time because I've done not the whole thing of uh, not obviously being like I'll buy my fucking beer but like you know I've, I've done the whole going around to venues and, and, and meeting people and trying to encourage them to drink the beers. It's hard. I mean, it, it it is hard. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing that I didn't really consider until I've moved out of predominantly brewing and selling beer into what I do now is that ultimately your product's got to work for two people: the end drinker. So obviously the quality's got to be there and the branding and so on. But the the B two C customer. So you guys. You know what's 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 my beer going to do for you? Yeah. How is it going to help you get more customers, get people to spend more? And I don't think a lot of breweries and salespeople think in that way.
3: No. Yeah, I I used I worked with someone once um, that said relationships are like bank accounts. Yeah. You have to put a lot in to be able to take something out. Mm-hmm. And I think I've tried to do that when, when I were doing sales, I've tried to do that a lot, whether that's be going into people's venues with, without the salesman head on, seeing what it's like, seeing if the, the beer that, I, that I, I was selling at the time would work in there and having a pint so I actually know the venue, not just walking in. And like, we, as Ben says, with some samples and like, oh, there you go, that's it. And then like three minutes later, walk out um, and, then, and then wonder why I never got a sale. It, it is. It's, I
4: think it, we've both been in a position as well, haven't we, where a salesman has come back, maybe even only two weeks later and they go, higher, And you're thinking, who's this? Because that initial, when they've dropped the beer, they're in, they're out. And you want to be able to know straight away, oh, that's Nick, that's Darren. Yeah. It, mm. And that's the difference. Yeah. That is yeah. the difference, isn't it? That <laughs> it, personal, and building that relationship is very important. There's a lot of brewers that we work with. And yeah. we speak to them on a like, weekly basis, don't we? It's yeah, yeah. almost you know friends.
3: Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's that. It's that chat around not buying beer. I guess is is, is the one yeah, no, totally, is yeah. the one that helps the relationship and and that's yeah and and that's what you, it is. It. We talk about it. it is a relationship that you've got to work on, um, and invest that time and effort. And I think having having done the role and the pressure that is there, sometimes you can understand why, as Ben says, you get those numerous calls uh, via different methods and everything else because there is pressure to sell volume and it's not necessarily the right pressure and it's it's the wrong relationship for us as business owners that will we, we don't respond to pressure i didn't yeah no one wants pressure in the life it, it's, it's tough enough as it is um so let's let's make it as easy as possible and if buying beer is easy because you've got a relationship with a brewery Fantastic. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I
4: mean, we both dread Monday morning, don't we? Because you're going to get probably upwards of twenty, thirty phone calls Monday morning, and you might you can't answer them all. Yeah. Because it's going to be the same conversation. You know, I've already got beer in or whatever, and and you, you don't want that awkwardness. So you do screen them. You screen the calls, and quite often, all the once all those calls have settled down, we will then ring a brewery that yep. we want their beer from. Yep. Because they've not rung us, hassling us. We ring them and say, would I be able to get X, Y, and Z?
0: Yeah. I think that's what's great about platforms like Seller, for example. I've only just discovered Seller recently, and I was like, this, that, I had the idea back in 2016, 2017, when I was at Sheffield Brewery, and we had the problem where, you know, Paddy be on the, on the blower to, like you say, probably sell yeah. <laughs> at yeah. points, you know, um, try, trying to sell our beer... And it, it, yeah, no one pick up, we get the same response, etc., etc. et cetera. And I was like, Paddy, there needs to be some platform where a landlord can pick up the phone, scroll through what they want and order different beers and not pay extortionate delivery fees to the point where a courier comes and picks it up and we don't have to do a drop-off or whatever. And that's effectively what that platform is. Yeah. You know, mm. and it's it, stuff like that's brilliant because it's, it, it eases the sales friction. Like, say, you guys can... Hop on that so I'm not getting paid by them at all. If you, if anyone from sellers listen to this and they want to sponsor the Hot Forward podcast, it's nick at hotforward.beer. Email me. Um
3: but like <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely, lovely sales pitch Self-pitch there. Nick. Yeah, there you, there
4: you go. Always oh, <laughs> oh, a salesman. Oh, Love yeah. it. And yeah. now for our ad break. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: sponsored sponsored by Ebria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Charles Farm, actually. Um, yeah, and um I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> <laughs> you were you, too busy into sales, I word. Yeah, sales. Yeah. Oh idea. Oh, moving on. So yeah, let, let's touch back upon the stuff you were saying earlier about uh, types of beer. So we've moved on from 300 IBUs, Imperial Stouts that are like 20%, fermented in squirrels with, you know, peanuts and rare berries from... Fucking Amazonia, like
4: served in a slush machine.
0: So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went to um, I, I went to Dark City, um, Northern Monk, before they did all the wild beers at that event as well. I think it was last year. It was just Imperial Stouts. I got in and there was absolutely humongous queue. I was like, you've got to be kidding me! I've queued to get in. Now I'm gonna have to queue up for beer. And then I realised it was a queue to a slush puppy machine. Serving like slush puppy beers, it was massive. Yep. I mean, I didn't, I was just like, I'm drawing the line, I, I, you know. I, I, well, you joined the line, No, no, sorry, <laughs> I, no, I'm drawing,
2: <laughs> I should have drawn the line,
0: yeah. I drew, drew the line, um, but yeah, so we, we've moved on from those days you, you guys were saying earlier. Um,
3: what are people buying now? Why they're buying it? People love spending time with people, um, and I think. I see a lot more of people having two, three pints. So, yeah, for-
4: that session strength. Yeah. Mm. Um, I can't think of the last time I've had anything over, but probably six and a half percent on my mm. bar. Uh, biggest sellers are always the sub five. Um, we've just, I've just brought in the new Thornbridge and Budvar lager that they've made. Um, and that's that's outselling everything probably five to one
0: it's a lovely beer mm.
4: it's a great beer yeah and it's I can imagine great, that selling
0: well it's a great yeah.
4: beer and it's because it's not it's not your traditional lager that you can get in all the other pubs in the area and I think it suits suits the beer drink if they come in and there's nothing mm. on the, the wickets that take their fancy that they they, they move straight onto the lager yeah mm. um, and it's it's crazy to think that you know years ago when i first started i don't think i even had a lager on tap for about six months Uh, it was just just beer just sold beer and then slowly it's changed round and now it's outselling lagers outselling the other products five to one which is astonishing really astonishing and i think that's that's almost testament though to the there's a lot of people now moved across from your sort of brewery-owned pubs, you know, they sell Carlin and Foster's and stuff because the prices have gone up in those pubs significantly. Mm. All, the, all the craft beer bars, the independent bars, used to be that little bit more money. And I think now there's been such an increase from the brewery-led pubs that people are thinking, well, if I'm going out and spending that much, I may as well spend 10 pence more and go and drink a really nice mm. beer over there with some people that I might have something in common with.
3: Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, industry still have background music, but uh, yeah, you can see it is—it's it's that conversation that people are coming and having two, three, and yeah, I'll still—I'll still get—I'll still get people that are doing Untapped and 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 want a third of the Imperial Stout and a third of something else that they've not tried. But I get a lot of people now that want, yeah, two, three pints. So Sundial, a Steady Rolling, yeah, magazine cover, yeah, Colonel Table Beer. They'll, yeah, they'll want a couple of pints because they say if they're going to get out and get out, it may be, they may only be getting out once, twice a week. Um, they want to make the most of that time and mm. and traipsing, traipsing around a city trying to get... As many like thirds as you can in an evening is probably not what they want to do now.
0: <laughs> it's a little it's bit it's like Pokemon tiresome. Go when you think
3: about it. Yeah,
0: yeah. got to catch more. <laughs> yeah,
3: so so it is. I mean, yeah, it's love love all the customers that you get, and that's why we do what we do. It's yeah, we're in a trade that we we see people. We we're there to support through sad times, and happy times. Yeah.
0: do you think that some of the independent craft brewers were more on the hypey end or the i hate the word craft but you know hopefully i'm painting a picture with that word with what i'm about to say Do, do you think that there's still a bit of a mentality of brewing those kind of beer styles whereas you know, and it's almost like an echo chamber because you know there's a lot of brewers on Twitter and they're all talking amongst themselves and the beer writers and people like me do podcasts and stuff. It's like, oh, try this, try that, and so on. But when I go on and Taps and look at some of the breweries I work with who just make normal sessionable beers, you know, it's like you just get a lot of people giving them like decent ratings, and I'm not talking like four and a half out of five. You know, you, you kind of like yeah. 3.6, 3.7 out of 5. Consistency, and con- which yeah, is what we talked about yeah. earlier.
4: Yeah. Quality, consistency.
0: And do, do you think that a lot of brewers might be missing a trick because the, they're kind of so focused on the thing they're passionate about, which is like beer styles and really good beers that actually most people you encounter in your bars are just average people that like our beer. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I mean, i I work through so many cask beers I'm only open trading for four days a week and at the start of that week there'll be new cask on every time Um, and predominantly I try to keep keep that range quite not so much familiar but almost there's got to be stuff on there that's non-offensive to the the average Joe that walks through the door and they're going to have that and go oh that that's quite nice if I'd got you know, double dry hopped stuff on every week on the cask. That guy that walks in, who's never been in before, who normally drinks John Smith's next door, he's probably not going to enjoy that beer, and he's gone. So I've always had a focus. I will, I'll have them beers, those beers on, but in smaller quantities because mm. the more traditional, you know, a pale ale, sort of four, four and a half percent will be more suited to the majority of the people that walk through the door including those that love a good beer and they appreciate that just consistency because they might come in and drink four pints Mm -hmm. and they go that's very nice
3: yeah but yeah and and i do love i mean i I love an imperial stout and i do love having an imperial stout on an, an industry tap but i think Brewers just need to be aware that sometimes sticking an imperial stout in a 20 litre is a little bit too big. You don't want to have it stuck there forever. I mean, you are going to be selling that product in thirds. You might occasionally sell a half. But it's going to be predominantly thirds. There's always someone like me that comes in, can I have two thirds of that
0: be damage?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but and it, and it, and it will be. It'll, it, it is going to be, those beers lend lend themselves to, to drinking that sort of volume. Um, so yeah, I just, I mean, I, the stuff I've bought, I've bought in 10 litres, bought in 12s. It's very rarely now that I would buy in a 20. And certainly, we, I mean, those few breweries that stick an Imperial in, into a 30. It's um. a
4: brave move.
3: <laughs> wow, there are people that actually do that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: We've seen that before. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, even the 20, though, like you say, if that's best part of what, 35 pints, so in thirds, that's 105 servings. That's, that's a, a lot, lot of beer. So yeah. That's a lot.
0: Yeah. And that's quite a long turnover rate, I would imagine. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And then, then you've got to factor in that that beer is going to be sat on your pump you're going to have to clean the line you're wasting that beer and nobody's got a a line that's a third third of a pint you know they're all you're getting rid of a substantial amount of beer each time you clean that line and that's got to be factored into the cost Mm. which then makes it even more Daunting the thought of buying that and
3: putting it on the bar. Yeah, it? I mean, one, one of the decisions that I taking that into consideration. One of the early decisions I made at industry tap where the imperial line is is at cellar temperature, straight from cellar to to tap. Um, yeah, the customer gets a better experience because it's not been chilled to 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 two degrees or whatever else, and has to sit and watch it warm up for next half hour to to enjoy the flavors that are in there. So. Mm. Yeah, well those beers in particular need to be on the kind of
0: warmer warmer end. Yeah. Not, not obviously like, oh it's like a cup of tea, but <laughs>
3: Yeah. Yeah, the forty degree heat in the summer. Yeah, yeah. That that weren't that <laughs> not good for an Imperial yeah, stout, right? were well, Yeah. Yeah.
4: Mould stout. Mold stout.
3: Yeah. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well I, um, I Emmanuel's Imanuel's mould well, stout. I did I did one that we served at the
0: um, well, Hopes and Beers tea, a few years back. Man. It was a um, a spice barley wine, wasn't it? Yeah. But I think we did that on a wool cell I think the arrangement we had initially was like, you charge me for what you sell yeah. and I'll take the keg back but then he ended up just sort of keeping the keg and getting through it but I would imagine that took a while to yeah, it did. churn over particularly but, in February when it's like do I really fancy Christmas beer? Yeah. Is it too early to celebrate Christmas yet? But, but like we talked about <laughs> earlier
3: on when you've got a relationship with yeah, with yeah. a brewery and with with the guy that owns it you're going to support and, and that's what you do because you know that people have put love and time into the beer and if you can support someone that's done that because you've got a relationship as a we, we, we've talked massively about relationships mm. with, between sales and, and venues so yeah so just to round up our conversation
0: today where do you see the hospitality industry heading I mean it's been a turbulent time from 2020 onwards with stay at home but don't stay at home go to the pub don't go into the pub
3: you know tap elbows Let, let's 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 not forget a substantial meal yeah which is yes, a scotch, scotch egg. egg absolutely or a greg sausage roll seeing as gregs are doing so well now i think that i think it's all <laughs> it's all come from lockdown
4: conspiracy right there <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we've gone through all that and then we had list who was like let's tank the economy and see how much damage we can do in a few weeks um, and now we've seen bars closing at a, a crazy rate. Breweries not faring much better. Like where where do you see it going?
3: I think there needs to be. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I think there just genuinely needs to be some sort of support, whether that's by people staying independent and and going out and drink, choosing where choosing where they drink in the right location, I guess, um, and not. I'm not saying that chain pubs are. are the devil but there's a there's a lot of independence out there that it makes me wince every time I see another pub gone because um, it is tough out there and yeah I think we know there's going to be very little support from the government um, it's just well yeah you decided to, you decide to run your own business and pay your own taxes but we're not going to support you anymore so so I think yeah I just hope that people support independence
4: I think one of the better things that happened during lockdown and the commencing months, years after that, was the, was the VAT levy for, for pubs. And then I think, there's, I've not looked into it myself, but there probably is a correlation there between when that went back up to normal, if you will, and the demise of lots of pubs. Mm. You know, that, that levy there was significant. Um, and surely there's got to be something at a government level Somebody's got to be looking at that and thinking, well, if we did that again, how much would it cost us in lost revenue? But how many jobs, pubs, et cetera, would it save? Because, you know, for every pub that goes under, that's another X amount of people that aren't having their wages paid. Yep. Therefore, they're not paying taxes. They've not got money. They're not going to the local shops and spending money because they've not got a job for the present, you know. there's. I think that support... If that was a very quick, effective helping hand to, mm. to the industry.
0: It's a challenging... I mean, there's so many challenges at the moment all round. Obviously, you've got stuff like taxes and the, the general economy mm-hmm. and the changing habits that people have f- formed because of COVID, even to the point where... <laughs> I always think about this whenever I see people queuing up in a single file at a bar, like... Do you remember there used to be like a big rugby scrum to get to bar and landlord be like, who's next? I remember being in one pub once, someone quitting in front of my dad and he, he takes no prisoners when it comes to that sort of thing. And he just kind of put his arm out and went, excuse me. I was first, and then he put his put order in, and it was really embarrassing, but, like, you know, it, it, you don't have that anymore. Partly, maybe I'm quite glad, but I actually s- sort of missed that kind of, like, the, the scrum as well of trying to get the bar person's attention.
4: Waving your £20 note instead yeah, yeah, of the guy at the yeah. Side yeah. with a fiver in the hope that they go, he's going to spend more money, I'll serve him. That's it. It's like, <laughs> oh, you
0: get a £50 note out, and it's like, oh, I'm not having that, it's not real real tender. But now, but now, you know, like... The amount of um, I say youngsters makes it sound really old, but like all kids on smartphones, you know, I say kids like people in the, the legal drinking age, obviously. Um, but on smartphones and, and all the, the wealth of choice that people have these days to, to entertain themselves, I mean, that's got to be a massive challenge in and of itself.
3: Mm. Yeah, it it definitely is. I mean, just trying to keep customers coming in is is always, yeah, you you keep your venue looking nice, you keep your your beer choice good. uh, But ultimately, people have a choice where they're going. And yeah, like you say, with more and more choice out there and different experiences, that people i mean i don't know yeah i love going to a pub and i remember exactly what you've just talked about the fact that you would battle your way five deep to a to try and get to eventually get it from <laughs> yeah. to then be like dumbfounded with what beers are on choice yeah so yeah it's it's a tough one place, so. place your place double order so you didn't have to go exactly again i remember
0: and... i remember doing that loads of the devonshire cat when yeah. that was, used to be open before I'd been able to get on like way, way back when you know and and it was kind of like that bar just down one side and in that little corner. And again, just to, I guess, just to round off with the whole Belgian theme, you know, they used to have that um, kind of store cupboard with the glass windows yes, and all yeah. the Belgian beers in there. And I used to think, wow, look at all those amazing beers that I'd, I'd, I'd obviously, you could buy them, but for some reason, I just thought they were like on display. <laughs> 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 I mean, we're going back to like, I was about 19 or something, you know, and i would just discovering beer, you know, and, but like if we could go back in time, I would. Try some amazing Belgian beers. So, well, I mean, thanks for being on the podcast today. Now we're talking about Belgian beers. Um, how can people, when, when's the venue going to be open and how can people
3: find it?
4: Probably early November, I think, mm-hmm. realistically.
3: Yep, so hopefully by then, uh, Kezar, Sheffield have uh, Moved away from cooking on the stove to on the a, open fire, <laughs> yeah, on an open fire to a proper, fully fitted commercial kitchen. So, yeah, so that'd be good. Um, like I say, we're right outside of Chesterfield Coach Station. Um, the building's got an amazing piece of artwork on the outside done by Joe Peel. Um, so yeah, so you can't miss it. Amazing furniture shop at the front, which we sit behind. We've got a cracking space, lovely, 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 lovely terrace that'll be. Uh, fully heated in, for the winter, and then, yeah, uh, a terrace that catches the evening sun. Great stuff. Brilliant. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks. Cheers, Nick. Cheers. All
1: right, can I get three pints kind of Littabelle uh, the, the
0: week? Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer.com to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business remember to follow us on social media at hot forward beers and for another week cheers